Let's pray. Father, we now dedicate this time to you. We have come to seek you, Lord, rather than presuming we are now open to what your spirit would say to us. We need your direction. We need your spirit, Father, to convey your will to us, to confirm certain things that are being questioned and we're wondering about in our own mind. Lord, you know what those things are. You know us intimately. You know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray that just as we study your word tonight, as we're sitting here, Father, with friends and loved ones, with fellow believers in you, that, Lord, you would speak to us in a still, small voice, the voice of assurance, the voice of forgiveness, the voice of challenge or rebuke where we need it. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Over in Jordan, down in the south, there is a place that is a famous old city, the rock city of Petra. And a few years back, I had the privilege of going there with two of my friends, Franklin Graham and Dennis Agajanian. It was right before the war, so nobody was there. We had it all to ourselves. And so we got on a couple horses and we wandered through the wadi that leads to this place, the ancient Edomite refuge, and suddenly you turn a corner and this huge rock fortress built into the stone can be seen. I'd seen pictures of it, but I'd never seen it in person until this time, and it took my breath away. It's the same view, by the way, that is in the Indiana Jones film, The Last Crusade. The end of the movie where they go, and they're supposedly the Holy Grail is to be kept, and uh, they come through this desert area, and they, you see this huge rock city of Petra. Uh, they use it for the film. In the movie, one of the important scenes is when supposedly this chalice is found and there's an ancient medieval knight that is keeping guard over the Holy Grail. And of course, Indiana Jones is there and the other guy, the enemy who is trying to get to the Grail that he might have eternal life, live forever, find sort of the secret of youth. The problem is all of the choices that they have to make. There are all these different cups, some very fancy, some more plain. And the greedy man grabs what he would think would be the chalice, the cup used at the Last Supper by Jesus. It's a very fancy, ornate gold cup. And he takes it and he drinks from it. And Hollywood did an amazing thing with all of its high-tech graphics to basically have this guy explode. And the knight who was guarding it said, you must make your choice, but make sure that you choose wisely. And so the first guy grabbed it, drank, exploded, and the medieval knight turns toward Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, and says, 
He chose poorly. <laughs> oh, I'll say. So Harrison Ford has his time to pick, and he picks what would be the humblest of all the cups. He figures Jesus was a carpenter, a Galilean, and he would have not taken the most expensive, but he would have taken something that is base made out of earth, and it was the right one in the movie. Now, I'm not giving you an endorsement for the movie, but an introduction to the message tonight. Israel was at a crossroads of decision, a very important choice in this chapter. Actually, they're making it at the end of chapter 13, and they make it on into chapter 14. The choice to enter the land by faith or to not enter it and remain in unbelief. And that is the reason they didn't go into the land. It was more than just lions and tigers and bears, oh my, but it was there are giants in the land, and we don't think God is going to protect us. And so Hebrews chapter 3 tells us they could not enter in because of unbelief. And the scripture says, Beware lest any of you follow the same wicked heart of unbelief. For the writer says they had the same promises we have, but they didn't mix the promises with faith. Having God's promises are of no value unless you mix them with faith and you trust them, you believe them. And so now they weep. Their walking turns to wandering, and uh, they start wailing and complaining uh, during these years. It's interesting, though. These seem to be silent years. There's not much detail given of these 38 years of wandering. total of 40 years out in the desert, 38 of them were spent wandering. There's not much detailed record. There's a few highlights or lowlights, you might say, but nothing much. Chapter 33 is a record of what they did and where they went, but it's a very uneventful chapter. Just as they went here, then they went there, then they went there, then they went here, then they went there. The whole chapter is filled with it. But nothing is really eventful. So these are wasted years, wasted time. Now, at the same time, while it was wasted time and they made bad choices, sometimes the best way we learn is by making bad choices. The school of hard knocks, it's a pretty good school. A young executive went to an older executive because he would one day take over the company, and he was so concerned that he didn't make any mistakes, any failures. And he said, what is the secret to the success of this company? What should be my secret to my success? And the older man said, good decisions, son, good decisions. He said, well, that's what I want to make. I want to make good decisions. How can I make good decisions? He said, wrong decisions, poor decisions, my son. You need to make some of those so that you know what the right choice is the next time. Well, Israel's next time would be 38 years later, wherein some fell in the wilderness and, and died. Now, Egypt is a symbol of the old life. We remember that from studying Exodus. Uh, coming through Egypt, coming through the Red Sea, is a symbol of baptism. And then the wilderness experience on into the land of Canaan, which is symbolic of our new life in Christ, a walk in the Spirit. Now, there is a legitimate wilderness for the Christian. You have to get from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And there is a pattern that you need to develop. There is a growth that needs to happen. And I think there's a legitimate wilderness experience. 
to walking in the Spirit, shedding the old patterns, the old habits that we have. We learn to do that through walking in the Spirit, but it's not an easy process. Sometimes it's a slow process. It's not instantaneous. But then there's an illegitimate wilderness experience where, and I fear that a lot of Christians live in this place, they're just there too long. Now, I've had many wilderness experiences. I want you to know that. Life for me isn't always a smile from ear to ear every single day where I feel like I'm just bubbling over 100% of the time. I need the wilderness. It's where I learn to trust. Usually when a person comes to Christ, there is this experience of elation and satisfaction and overwhelming joy because, after all, their sins are forgiven. Their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They have heaven. Those are things to rejoice about. And it's pretty exciting. And it's almost as if it's a honeymoon period, like God would shroud you in a sort of bubble, even emotionally. You're just so stoked every day with Jesus. You've never experienced it before. It's new, uncharted territory. But eventually, you find yourself one day or through a series of circumstances out in the desert. You start wondering now, what happened to all that joy? What happened to my overflowing experience? I used to have this great feeling when I'd wake up in the morning. I don't have that feeling anymore. I've been cheated. Well, simple. God wants you to walk by faith, not by feeling, not by sight. You're being weaned. That you would trust that God will never leave you or forsake you, no matter how you feel. We don't like it, but it's important. But that illegitimate wilderness experience, being in the wilderness so long, wandering year after year, never really growing, never really walking in the Spirit. Oh, you get close to the Promised Land. You get awfully close. But just when you're there, you go back toward Egypt. It's a sad place to be. The children of Israel were there for a long time. Yet... You would think of all of the people on earth that this group of people would make it, would say, hey, let's get into the promised land. After all, all those plagues, the Red Sea opening up, killing all the Egyptians, manna coming out of heaven, water coming from a rock, a bush speaking to our leader, that's enough to convince us. They had seen more miracles than anyone else, any other nation up to that point. With uh, opportunity comes responsibility, right? Too much is given, much is required. And they had great opportunities to watch God. And so they had great responsibilities. That's why God in this chapter tonight holds them highly accountable. For though having so much, they disbelieved God. They had seen so much. Now think of us. Today we have the whole Bible. Today Jesus Christ has come, has risen, and is changing lives around the world. What we have seen, we too are accountable for. And so we must then move from the theoretical and the merely theological into the practical and the real, where we just don't read about things, but we experience things. I was reading the account of an army officer from Fort Sill, Oklahoma, who was telling about two different groups of students 
in his training classes. One was back in 1958, one was in 1965, and the class back in 58, uh, you couldn't wake them. I mean, they would sleep in the class. They were bored. They were not attentive to what uh, the instructors were saying. They were just fading away. But the class in 1965 were ardently taking notes and hanging on every word. What made the difference? Vietnam. In six months, they would be in Vietnam. And so there's a real war on. It's not just theory here. We're going to face the battle. We need to move this knowledge from the theoretical to the real. Verse 1, So all of the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Oh, what a horrible night that must have been. Not much sleep when you cry all night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt! Or if only we had died in this wilderness. I'm sure Moses was under his breath saying, Amen. <laughs> that would be good. Maybe you should die out here. Or in Egypt. I would find it awfully difficult to be around people who complain all the time. Because complaining is contagious. You already remember Moses started doing it himself. But now they've been weeping all night. And after an entire night of being emotionally drained, now they start complaining to the two leaders. You know, uncontrolled emotion can cause bad decisions. Sometimes people are caught up in the emotion of the moment. They're not really thinking clearly. They haven't had a good night's sleep. And they make rash decisions. Or they say stupid things. And all the people are around them, yeah, 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 we feel the same way. And so, you know, it's like a big snowball. It's hard to, it's very contagious. It's hard to stop it once you start. And again, I, I find people that will come to uh, church and uh, they're excited for a while. Oh, it's great. Gosh, I'm learning. But sometimes you'll find a person, though excited for a while, they start seeing reality human nature what it is, humans what we are, and they see problems. Well, I see a problem with that part of the ministry and, and that person. And, and listen, I could tell you about lots of problems. I see them all over the place. There's no such thing as perfection, but once a person gets on that vibe, it's hard to stop. And once a person sees problems and reasons to complain, it's usually best that they leave because they will infect others. And just like the mixed multitude, incite the entire group. But they've been weeping all night and now they're complaining. They had lost their perspective. They had forgot what they knew of God's character. And so they complained. Now whenever you hear a cry of despair around you, people start complaining, stop for a minute. Instead of joining in, get the larger perspective. It's important to get good perspective. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by a certain situation. Isaiah felt overwhelmed. After all, King Uzziah had been on the throne for 52 years in Israel. He was a great guy. He brought spiritual reform to the nation. He brought revival to the nation. And even though there were sins in Israel, people were still going faithfully to the temple and there was godly leadership. But now King Uzziah died and Isaiah has lost his perspective. 
And so he went to the temple. And there in the temple he caught a vision of God high and lifted up, sitting upon the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God was saying, Isaiah, I'm on the throne. Never mind Uzziah being on or off the throne. I'm still in charge. Get your perspective right. Get the big picture. These guys don't live forever, you know. I'm in control of things. That is why we need to regularly get together as Christians. We need regular fellowship. We need regular reminders through worship and through the Word of God of who God is, what He does, what He can do. We need to regularly hear the testimony of other people. All of that to encourage us because we have a tendency to focus on all the bad little things that can happen to us. We need a perspective adjustment. You know, if you think about it, if you think of just the need in the world, you could get so caught up in despair. There's 2.8 billion people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Now, here we are in the United States saying, that song was too loud. And there's 2.8 billion people that haven't heard of Jesus Christ. And just thinking of those 2.8 billion, you think, well, what's the use? What is my little effort? We get overwhelmed. Listen, God is still on the throne. God has a plan to reach all those people. God loves them. God hasn't forgotten about them. God is moving. And so it's important that we worship. It's important that we study the Bible. It's important that we do it together to get our perspective adjusted. Perspective changes so much. Think of David and Goliath. Compare David to Saul's men in ancient Israel. Saul's men were trembling. He's so big. David comes out there, this little squirt. This little shepherd boy goes, oh, who is this uncircumcised Philistine mouthing off? You see the difference in perspective? To Saul's men, Goliath was too big to fight. To David, he was too big to miss. (laughs) All depends on how you look at it. And there is this perspective difference between the ten who give the bad report and the two who give the good report. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should be victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's select a leader and return to Egypt. Notice they're using their kids as an excuse This is unsafe for our children. We have to be concerned about our children. Oh, it sounds so noble, but you know what they're really saying? They're saying God doesn't care about our children. We care about our kids. We've got to do something. Well, that's an indictment against God. Let's us, we'll select a leader. Why has God brought us out here? God doesn't care about our children. Ah, but who entered the land 38 years later? Their children did, and they didn't. God was more concerned about their children, and they would eventually enter the land while the parents, the adults, would be the ones who would die in the wilderness. God was concerned. Complaining against God and God's care. And really, think about it this way. Do you believe God's in charge of your life? Have you surrendered your life to God? Have you said, Jesus, take control? Now, do you trust that God is overruling and overriding your life? as you trust him? Well, if so, then when you complain about your lot in life, you're complaining against God. 
Now, I've been in that situation where I've complained about my lot in life. And then I realize, you know, I'm complaining against my boss. God. I have to be careful. Whenever we lose our first love relationship with Jesus Christ, and he no longer satisfies us, we start looking back to Egypt. He's not my satisfaction every day. I'm not resting and deriving my enjoyment and my satisfaction from him. So I think, you know, I'm going to go back there. That looks so appealing back there. And of course, we have selective memory, as the children of Israel did. Galatians 5 says, The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And that was happening here. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, that is not the son of Anun, but the son of Nun. That was his father's name. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those, had spied out the land and tore their clothes. They spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. I love his attitude. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Oh, they might look big, their de- protection is departed. God's with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Isn't it interesting that whenever they complain, the glory of the Lord appears? We find this very often in this section of history. It wasn't a good sign here that the glory of God appeared. You know, Moses said, oh God, show me your glory. Hey, listen, every time God showed up in a powerful way like this, it's because they weren't doing very well. He showed up here. Now they have to make a decision. Will they listen to two people or ten people? Well, the majority must be right. I mean, ten say, forget it. Only two guys say, let's go for it. We will listen to the majority report. We'll take a vote. We'll do a demographic And we'll go with the majority. Whatever the majority says is right. Right? Wrong. Only two were men of faith. Now imagine having to stand before a whole group of people that want to stone you. And don't believe in God. Don't trust in God. And they're just, they're ready to stone you. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to speak to a crowd about Jesus Christ who were not all sympathetic with the gospel. I have the opportunity many times. I get to do funerals. I get to do weddings. I get to speak at things that aren't necessarily Christian events, sometimes political events. I'm asked to give an invocation, and I like to maximize the time that I have and share the gospel. And it's interesting as you scan the audience and you look at the faces that look back at you. There's a reason God said to young Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their mugs, of their faces. Because you can look at a certain face and it's very intimidating. You share the gospel and there's those who go, yeah, and they track with you. You always try to look for those people and look at them long because they're encouraging. But there are, there are those, you know, if looks could kill, 
swords that come out of their eyes. How dare you tell me the truth? <laughs> Joshua and Caleb telling the truth before this rebellious group of people who didn't want to hear it. Yet he spoke the truth. Now there's a few things before we move on. You know, he says, don't rebel against the Lord. It's a good land and so forth. Whenever you stand against a crowd and you want to be effective, there's a few things you must keep in mind. Number one, you must have all the facts. When you present your case for the gospel, you need the facts. Joshua and Caleb had seen the land themselves. It wasn't just hearsay. They had been there. It wasn't a Polaroid photo that they held up. They saw it. It's a good land. We've been there. And so when you share the gospel, you are able to share what God has done in your life. You have a personal testimony. It's so important. It goes so far. Not just rattling off a Bible verse, but showing it in your own life by the fact of your own testimony. Secondly, you need the right attitude. Caleb and Joshua were willing to trust God. God made a promise. I've got all the facts, but then I have the right attitude. And then thirdly, state clearly what you believe. That's what he does here. Do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread, verse 9. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Now, the people did not listen to this advice. They rejected it. They took the advice of the ten. The Lord said to Moses, verse 11, How long will these people reject me? Oh, they want to stone these representatives, but really they are rebelling against God. And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater, greater and mightier than they. They saw the ultimate state-of-the-art miracle. A body of water had opened. A couple million people, three million probably, were delivered on dry land. It was the miracle that every generation after them was always to remember at the Passover. Now, over in Exodus chapter 14, where the deliverance is written about, the 15th chapter is a song. Miriam gets the tambourine and just starts going for broke, man. She dances around, woo, you know. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And who is like the Lord? And he's done this and he's done that. And she sings the song again. And it's a parade. They're all excited seeing what God has done. Two verses later, they're in the wilderness. And they start complaining. Two verses later. One day they're partying. The next day, oh, why are we out here? God has forsaken us. They had seen so much. And they were rejecting the Lord. And God took it personally here. Let me tell you something about miracles. They only dazzle for a moment. And people that often look after miracles and want to find the next newest miracle that's happening in town get dazzled, but they want a bigger and a better. They need a bigger fire next time. It's not enough. You can't build your faith upon just things like miracles, but the Word of God you need to build your life on. Remember in the New Testament, even after the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus rose him from the dead. Lazarus come forth. The Pharisees still wanted to kill him. Because the miracle didn't dazzle them. It was just evidence against them. And the people followed and they were excited for a while. Hosanna, glory 
to God in the highest. This is the son of David. But a few days later, many in the same crowd shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! They didn't get the miracle that they wanted. Our memories are often very short. We forget God's faithfulness. We forget what God has done. And we focus on what God isn't giving us rather than what God has already given to us. We're not getting our needs met. Hey, what has God done for you so far? What right do you have to complain against God? Next time you and I are prone to complain, just remember that our garbage disposals eat better than a third of the world. God has been so good to us, so gracious to us. Okay, they're out in the wilderness. Okay, manna gets old after a while. But they're eaten. But they want to go back. Paul in Romans 1 speaks of forgetting to be thankful, and he says, When they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were they thankful. Neither were they thankful. It all starts when our hearts turn from just, Oh, thank you, God. Think of it this way. What if God gave you nothing but just delivered you from hell and sin? That'd be enough, wouldn't it? And let you starve the rest of your life. You'd still starve and go to heaven instead of be filled and go to hell. God has given us so much. But the children of Israel, instead of focusing on what God has done for them, they focus on what God hasn't given to them. Their agenda hasn't been met. Now, that'll destroy any relationship. Any relationship. Oftentimes, young couples get married. They're all excited about each other. Oh, you're awesome. I look deep into your eyes. You'll fulfill my every need. Ooh, white picket fence, little house. It's going to be awesome. And after, you know, a few months, and you start seeing the little problems. You start forgetting to be thankful and start remembering what kindled that love in your relationship. And it destroys a relationship. I heard of a young couple right after they're married. They were on their honeymoon, in fact. The husband had the tenacity to say, Honey, now that we're married, I would like to point out some of the little problems, some of the defects that I've noticed in you. And that would make any bride blush or get upset, but she simply smiled and said, oh, certainly, honey, go ahead and point out those little defects out because it's all those little defects that kept me from getting a better husband. <laughs> and really, he had nothing to share after that. <laughs> now, God, now that you've delivered me uh, from Egypt, I like to point out all the little defects about being out here in the desert. Oh, really? So God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. I'll just destroy them. Moses said to the Lord, Well, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your might, you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people. That you, Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was unable to bring this people to the land which he swore to give to them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. Now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. This is what God told Moses some time back. 
forgiving iniquity, transgressions. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Now, it appears here that God is so ticked off at these people, so angry that he just wants to destroy them, and Moses is sort of calming God down. That's what it would look like if you just read it on the surface and not consider all that God has said so far with all of the covenant promises that he's given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even spoken through Moses. And it seems like, well, here's Moses giving, uh, countering God's argument. God says, here's my argument why I'm going to destroy them. Well, wait a minute. Let, let me challenge your argument, God. Let me give you a reason why you shouldn't destroy them. So it looks like God is the bad guy and Moses is the good guy. And we go, oh, whew, wow, thanks for Moses. This is what I believe is happening. I think true prayer always begins with God. I think it was God's intention all along to elicit this response, solicit this response from Moses. You know, he's sharing, you know, the possibility of judgment, which was a real possibility, but he wanted every excuse not to judge them. He was looking for somebody to stand in the gap, just like in Ezekiel. God says, I look for a man to stand in the gap for these people, but there wasn't one. God didn't want to destroy them. That was his heart. And Moses was touched by God's heart. God began the prayer by bringing out this emotion in Moses. And so Moses intercedes, and God says, okay, no judgment. Now Moses realizes an important truth. Notice how he talks about God. He says, listen, God, if you judge these people, then the rest of the neighbors around are going to look at these people called your people and they're going to get an impression based upon them and your destruction of them. He brings out an important truth. The character of Christians reflect the character of God. And that is the unbeliever looks at us and they develop their impressions of God through you. Many won't come to church and so they'll read you rather than reading the Bible. And they'll see what kind of a God you reflect that you live out. And their impressions of God are often formed by us. Remember when David sinned, Nathan came to him and said, you are the man. David said, oh, I'm so sorry, I've been busted. And Nathan said, okay, David, you know, God will forgive your sin, but because of your sin, you have given great occasion for the Gentiles to blaspheme. They've seen what you've done, David. And they're looking for excuses to say, see, those Christians always do this, this, and the other thing. And it's an important truth. But he also reveals God as a loving father, a gracious God, patient, who forgives again and again and again. You pardon the iniquity of your people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, verse 19, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. God, look, your track record is that you have forgiven. They've already been creeps and you've forgiven them. Forgive them again. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. God will complete his plan for the children of Israel. God will bring them eventually into the land. Yet they will have consequences for their sin. The older generation will die, but the new generation will get there. God promised that. God will complete what he said he'd do. 
God has made promises for you and for me. God will complete the work that he said he would complete in you. You don't have to worry. God knows what the outcome is going to be. God is leading. God is directing. God won't bring you up to this point and say, okay, forget it. Why is it that sometimes in the church we think that God will only forgive us when we're sinners, but not when we're Christians? God forgave you as a sinner. And if he did not spare his only son, but freely gave him up for us all, Paul says, how will he not with him freely give us all things? God will bring you there. God will take you into the land. Now, in verse 22, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. They had hardened their hearts. And the Bible talks about hardening our hearts. And it says, don't harden your hearts like those who did it in the wilderness. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians and in Psalm 95. Listen to what David said in Psalm 95. He calls it the rebellion. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, tried me, and though they saw my work, for 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter in to my rest. Be careful when you hear the word of God to obey it rather than to harden your heart against it. Because though we can be pardoned, and the children of Israel were pardoned for their sin, God didn't say, okay, we'll forget the 38 years. They still suffered the consequences. Every action does have consequences. And so they were forgiven, but there was a 38-year delay. Verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with the evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above. You know, kids will often speak about going all the way in a relationship, going all the way sexually. Well, listen, young person, you haven't gone all the way until you stand before God. That's going all the way with your sin, standing before a holy, righteous God. You are free to choose anything in this life. 
You can do anything you want. God has given you that freedom. Volition is a powerful freedom. But you are not free to choose the consequences of your choice. They could have done anything they wanted, and they chose to rebel. Fine, God honored their choice, but there were consequences, and they were not free to choose their consequences. They stand before God, and the entire number here from 20 years old and above, from the youth all the way up, were killed. You see, in reality, you might think, well, I'm breaking God's law. No, you will be broken by God's law eventually. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap life. Now, if we figure that at least 1,200,000 adults from 20 years and above fell in the wilderness, were killed during that time, the next 38 years, that would be approximately 85 funerals a day, or seven deaths every waking hour. Now, there were certain episodes where large groups of people fell in the rebellion of Korah, in the rebellion of Baal of Peor, which we come to later on, but there was this constant reminder that the wages of sin is death. As that generation just dropped off. Verse 30, Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. Forty days. For each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land... Those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. They believed the ten. The ten are now dead. And it's like, oh, oh. Bad omen of coming attractions. And they rose up early in the morning and went out to the top of the mountain saying, Here we are and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Now they realize they made a mistake. And it sounds like, hey, awesome, they're ready to return to God and go into the land. Well, we see that God won't let them go into the land at this point. There's a difference between being remorseful and being repentant. Oh, they're so bummed out. Why? Because they know the judgment is coming on them. They're not sorry they offended a holy God, that they didn't mix the promises with faith. They're sorry because of the consequences. I think probably every person who is sitting in jail tonight is sorry. At least most are. They're at least sorry they got caught. They're not necessarily sorry for what they have done. 
They're sorry they're there. They don't like what they're facing. They're crying out and hear their mourning. But they're not able to go into the land. Moses said, why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Sometimes right actions and wrong intentions come too late. It's not important that we just do the right thing, but we do the right thing at the right time. There is a time element many times. There are choices that we have to make at certain times. We have to be careful what we choose at what time. Do not go up, verse 42, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. This would not be faith to go up. It would be presumption. Moses said, don't do it. You're dead meat if you try, for God is not with you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword because you've turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you, but they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. Before we get into the next chapter, let's just sort of sum up this whole thing that we've been talking about for the last couple weeks on complaining. Then we'll move on. We'll get out of here and move on to the next phase of this book. Complaining can be a response to stress. If you just put yourself in the seat or in the sandals of the children of Israel, they had enough stuff going on around them, uh, enough problems going on around them, that would cause anybody to have stress. You'd think, well, this is just a natural and a normal response. They encountered shortages, inconveniences, and difficulties can lead to stress. I don't think the children of Israel really wanted to go back to Egypt, but they wanted life to be easier. Secondly, complaints come from focusing on unfulfilled desires. You will get into a rut if you keep thinking, God didn't do this for me, God didn't do that for me, rather than thinking, God has done this and that and this and that, and start counting the blessings. It's a terrible rut to get into. And third, Complaining can harm others as well as ourselves. You see, whenever we complain, we create an impression. And people who are young in the Lord or people who are not Christians, they get an impression as, hmm, why should I become a Christian? Their God didn't treat them very well. I don't want to follow that kind of a God. But when they see your joy, when they see your life changed, when they see that even in the midst of sorrow, you've still got that joy in the Lord. Wow, that makes a great impression. People are attracted to that. Makes a big difference. Let's get into the next chapter, chapter 15. Now, their long journey to the plains of Moab, and, and chapter 15, we're not going to go through it all. We're going to kind of skim over it, and believe me, we're going to finish it before the night's over, because we're going to skip large sections of it. We've already covered these laws before. But God, immediately after this complaining and after this defeat, gives them some rules for additional worship once they get into the land of Israel. Now, to me, this is beautiful. They, they've just complained in chapters 13 and 14, and God kind of changes the subject and says, okay, now when they get into the land, 
here's some rules that I want them to keep. It's, it's as if God doesn't dwell long on their failure. He gets right into their responsibilities once they get into the land. And so verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am g- giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering or in your appointed feast to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd of your flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a fourth of a hen of oil. Now this is wonderful. They've just been turned back from entering the land. And God says, when you enter it, not if you ever make it. But God encourages them, folks. He gives them assurance. You're going to make it. At least your kids will make it. But you'll get there. I've made a covenant with you. I said that you will have this land. And when you get there, and then he just reiterates some of the laws that they are to get. They are to uh, follow. I imagine at this point, the older people especially are very discouraged. 38 years for some people, is the rest of their life. For many of them. For 1.2 million of them. So they're probably feeling awfully discouraged. Oh, what's the use? And so God is really encouraging them when you get into this land. You see, God knows that you will fail him. Whenever you fail God, do you think God is shocked? Do you think God says, Man, I had high expectations for you. I thought that you would live a perfect life. I was counting on you. I was trusting in you. You let me down. The Bible says God knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. That's such a comfort. What do you expect out of a dirt clot? Perfection? God remembers my frame. He knows that I'm a dirt clot. That's a great scripture. I love it. And often I remind God, God, look, you know I'm a dirt clot. You remember, my friend, you know that I'm frail, you know that I fail. But just because they fail, the national inheritance of Israel was still intact. They would get that land one day. We don't like to fail, but we don't take God off guard when we do fail. And you know what? We need to learn from our failures, folks. Sometimes people are so afraid to fail, they won't try anything. They won't do anything. We need to get up again and walk and go for the land that God has for us. Somebody once described real failure as, quote, living without knowing what life is all about, feeding on things that do not satisfy, and thinking that you have everything only to find out you have nothing that really matters. That's real failure. And we fail God in our sins, but we get up and we learn from them and we go on, and so with their children. Now let's go down to verse 13. He goes through all these rules of their sacrifices. And all who are native-born shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you or among you throughout your generations and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. So strangers or foreigners have to follow the rites of being proselytes, the sacrifices and so forth. If you sin, look at verse 22. If you sin unintentionally, And you do not observe all of these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses. All that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be 
If it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation, that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering, its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel. It shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them, because the people did it unintentionally. There are some times when we don't mean to commit sin, but they are sins of omission. We fail to do something. We didn't want to do it, but we did it. It still needs to be atoned for. 174 times in the New Testament, the word harmatia is used for sin, which means to miss the mark. Have you ever missed the mark? What is the mark? Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's plan B, God? I've missed the mark. Well, we need atonement. And even unintentional sins need atonement. Let's say you were racing down the street... Let's say you were going 45 and it was a 20-mile-an-hour zone. And let's say you just didn't see the speed limit. So you didn't know. Oftentimes, a police will give you the ticket and will tell you the famous old saying, ignorance is no excuse. Here's your ticket. But I didn't know. Here's your ticket. Next time, you will know. And so this, these sins still needed to be atoned for. A lot of times, the world will pick up on this issue of sin. And, you know, we live in a culture that doesn't like the word sin. You know that. Sin is a Bible word. The world would say, flaw, weakness, hang-up. The Bible calls it sin. But the world is doing its best, number one, to encourage people to sin and to discourage guilt, which is the consequence of sin. Try to do everything. In fact, you go to some therapists, and it seems like the first thing that they will say with their ungodly counsel is, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty about this. You couldn't help it. It's not your fault. You have to look in the mirror, and you have to look at yourself and say, I'm good enough. I'm nice enough. And it's not my fault. You, you know, it's just take away the guilt. That's become the number one pursuit of these counselors who charge you $80 an hour and give you ungodly, syrupy nonsense. Get rid of guilt. No, guilt serves a good purpose, to drive you to the cross, where you get forgiven for your sin, not just sweeping it under the carpet. We need guilt. It drives us to Christ. And Christ forgives us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes people will come to me and say, I feel so guilty. And I ask, are you? Well, yeah. Well, good. You ought to feel guilty. But you shouldn't stay there. You should bring that to the cross and confess your sins and let God forgive you. It seems today that everybody is the adult child of something. It's not your fault. And, and what's the best way to rid guilt? Well, just rise to the level of being a victim. 
Everybody's a victim. The national anthem is now the wine. It's because when I was a kid, this happened. Okay, listen, we don't, all of us have imperfect childhoods. I could talk about my dad who did this and this. You know what? I'm an adult now. I take responsibility for my own life before God. I do. And if I act wrongfully because of something in the past, I become aware of it. And by God's grace and God's ability, that now changes. But to stay looking back to the past rather than forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are in front of me. That's what I ought to do. A lot of counseling today is, no, we've got to get you way back to the past. And we'll take you through primal therapy. And imagine yourself being in a womb and your parents weren't loving each other. Now go ahead, lay on the floor and scream. You're going to charge me 80 bucks for that? It's a ripoff. It's a ripoff. The best counselor in the world is God's word. The best reliever of guilt is the cross of Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's liberating to say, yeah, Jesus, that's his promise. You can give him a hand. It's liberating to say this, I have sinned. I confess my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Oh, that's so liberating. A young man came up to me on communion night. And after communion was over, he came up and hanging around and he said, uh, yeah, looking around your church here, I don't see a cross. I said, very astute. <laughs> there isn't one to be found. But we believe in the cross. An icon isn't important, but the reality of the cross is. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not a religious person or anything, but I just think that if you're a church, you know, you expect to see a cross. I said, well, that's interesting. I notice you say you're not a religious person, but you have a cross on your earring. And so you have a symbol that you say is important, but you don't even believe in its reality. What's up with that? Well, I'm not a religious person. He kept saying that. I said, you know, let me tell you something. I'm not a religious person either. What? No, I'm not a religious person. I don't like religion. You, you really, you know, I hate religion. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion has divided more people and ruined more lives. And I explained to him about the cross and the gospel, and he started talking about his sins. Oh, man, but I've done this and I've done that and i really looking for a new start. And, and it was, it was, he gave his whole story talking about the sins that he felt in bondage to, that he was ashamed of them. Eventually, we grabbed hands and he prayed to receive Christ. And as he did, and he said, Oh, God, I have sinned. He broke down in tears. This hardened young guy, this macho young man, just started weeping like a baby. He said, oh, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. God can do that. He did the right thing. He could have gone to a therapist from here till judgment day. Well, it's just, you know, you're nice enough. You're good enough. It's not your fault. Everybody, hey, I have sinned. But I didn't mean to, but atonement must be made. Do you see the reality, the necessity of Jesus going to the cross? Sin has been committed. Well, that's, 
horrible thing to say that, you know, God would require, hey, listen, God isn't requiring that you die for your sin. He required Jesus to die for your sin. But if you don't let him and take him as your savior, then it's appointed to every man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. you want to face God in your own sins? Or do you want to stand behind a savior who took your payment? Unintentional sins must be atoned for. Verse 27, if a person sins unintentionally, he shall bring a female goat. Its first year is a sin offering, and the priest will make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, it shall be forgiven him. Now, I, I did mention, and I feel very strongly, that our society is making every criminal a victim. It's not their fault, you know. You shouldn't really require punishment for them. They, they, something happened and went nuts when they were younger and now uh, this is what they've done and so they have murdered some people but they're a victim consider the story of Bernard McCummings a man who was mugged and beaten and shot in a New York subway he was not killed but he was severely injured and um, when the criminal was fleeing, the criminal was shot in the leg, but he survived. The criminal sued the New York Transit and won the case. He was able to get $4.8 million from the New York Transit. The man he mugged is still paying the bills, the hospital bills, and the criminal's a multimillionaire. Because he's a victim. What about the victim that he got? But see, that's our society. Sin is just, it's not dealt with as a reality. If a person sins now, uh, verse 29, you have one law for him who sins unintentionally for him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells with them. But a person, verse 30, who does anything presumptuously, whether native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord. He shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord, he has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. Completely cut off means the death penalty. And his guilt shall be upon him. Um, this is defiant sin. This is a sin of commission now, not a sin of omission. Uh, it's a deliberate sin, and the, um, the payment is excommunication and death. Now, the children of Israel were in the wilderness. They found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath, and those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Very severe? Yes. But this was an intentional sin. Intentionally doing something is, is a lot different. You are defying God. You know... When my son fails at something, it's different. But when he deliberately disobeys me, then he's asking for the challenge. He's, you know, he's, he's kind of like, I dare you to respond. 
And this, un- this intentional sin, this man was doing what was already forbidden in the law. It's like, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners, and you shall have the tassel, that you may look upon it and remember the commandments of the Lord to do them, that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. God knows we have a tendency to forget, and there's all these reminders. See the tassels? Remember the laws. You see the stones? Remember what I did over here at the Jordan. When you walk in your house and you see that little scripture verse you put up there, you remember the law. You put it on your head, the little phylacteries that they were to put, and they wrapped around their head and their hand. You remember the law of God. Now, the tassel is what is referred to in the New Testament as the hem of Jesus' garment. The woman who was the Syrophoenician woman when Jesus was on the way to uh, the house of Jairus to heal his daughter. She had an issue of blood for 12 years, and she said, you know, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, literally the tassels, the blue tassels, I will be healed. And those tassels became a point of contact for that woman to release her faith. So verse 41, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Is he your God? Or is he just your parents' God? Or is he just your children's God? or your grandfather's God, or your friend's God, or your spouse's God. Is he your God? Have you seen the life-changing work of God in your own life? You have to see it firsthand. And I love that story of that woman, that Syrophoenician woman. I know if I touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to grab. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go through the crowds and find Jesus. I would pray that that would be your choice tonight. If you haven't made that already... I'm going to find Jesus. Actually, he's not lost. He's looking for you. He wants to find you. And it takes that surrender. Lord, take my life. I surrender it to you. Let's pray. Lord, what powerful lessons are written for us in your word about the tendency of even those people who have seen the greatest miracles, the greatest work of God to complain against you. And what a disease this complaining is. How contagious this complaining is. How harmful it is to other believers, especially young Christians and even non-believers, as an impression is formed on their minds. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to focus rather on what we didn't get, on all of the blessings you have given us. The greatest of which is that you saved us. You have forgiven us of all of our sin. And you've written our name in the book of life. We would pray, Lord, for those who haven't made that choice tonight yet, that they would do so before this night is over. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all 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 name, 